This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Well, today I'm delighted to have Dr. Ben Bickman back. We originally recorded on episode 114, talking about the role of insulin resistance, metabolic health, and the current pandemic. And he is the author of a book I recommend frequently called Why We Get Sick. Welcome, Dr. Bickman. It's a pleasure to have you back again. Oh, my pleasure. It's all mine, uh, the pleasure. I'm glad to be here. This is always a fun opportunity to chat about topics that people really feel strongly about. I'm glad to share any knowledge I can. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we were talking before we started recording. And so the bulk of the people that really listen to the podcast in a very dedicated manner are women north of 35. And the concept of insulin for many of them seems a little bit intangible, but let's kind of unpack why this is so important, especially as women are chronologically getting a little bit older and how the role of insulin plays in terms of how our fat cells can change, how they respond to our sex hormones, because mm-hmm. I think this is really important for women to understand because it's not just in their head that suddenly things get a little more challenging at trying to maintain a healthy metabolic health as well as a healthy weight. And I don't like people to focus on their weight, but we can definitely agree that maintaining a healthy weight mm-hmm. is absolutely critical, especially as we start creeping north of 40. Yeah, so that is an interesting time. And perhaps the so men and women, as they age, there are changes in fat cell number. Now, there are so many ideas floating around in my head, and I'm going to try to put them all into a linear stream of thought. So both sexes have a relevance, or there is a relevance with fat cells. And that is fat cell number. One of the interesting things about the fat cells as we age is that we make almost all of our fat cells during childhood and puberty. And then once we finish puberty, we're done. That number of fat cells in most people, there are some people who are an exception to this, and that's about 15% of people who are in the obese category. But most people reach a limit, and that's their fat cell number essentially for adulthood. And then around as we are getting you know, past adulthood, which of course is beyond 40. So I'm just presenting a bigger spectrum of time at the moment. Then we get to our 60s or so, 70s, and then the number of fat cells we have starts to decline. Well, that sounds like it's a good thing. And I promise I'll bring this back to women specifically, but just to give the big picture, it sounds like that's a good thing. But what's happening is if a person is continuing to eat the same way they were before, that grew their fat cells to however big they got, big or small, too much, too full or, or, not, or not, whatever they were, if they had fat cells that were big and now you know overfull, and now they're starting to lose their fat cell number, that doesn't mean they're losing fat mass. What that does mean is that the fat that was being stored in five fat cells, as you cut off two of them because they die now and they aren't replaced with with another fat cell, which is what's been happening the whole time before then. One dies every 10 years-ish and another one takes its place. 
now you don't have that turnover. And so the fat that was being held in five fat cells, well, now that's only being held in two or three fat cells, meaning those remaining fat cells have had to carry a larger fat burden. And what you're doing is, is putting the fat cell in the perfectly wrong situation, which is forcing fat cells to be overfull or what's called hypertrophied or hypertrophic. And a hypertrophic fat cell is a bad fat cell. That's a fat cell that's misbehaving. It's becoming pro-inflammatory and insulin resistant and then promoting that insulin resistance throughout the rest of the body. So lest we look at the decline in fat cell number as a good thing, it could be. I do think there's an opportunity there, but it would involve the aging person to change their diet accordingly to make sure that there is lower energy and lower insulin, that when that fat cell is turned over, well, there was nothing really left in it anyway or when it died. And so we're not forcing a remaining fat cell to carry the burden of this dying fat cell has dropped at its feet. So now to bring this back to a woman who's say in her 40s or getting towards menopause, estrogens are undeniably a protective effect when it comes to insulin sensitivity and overall healthy fat storage. Now, estrogens, that family of hormones that we call estrogens, there's not one single hormone called estrogen, of course, they have they play a very interesting role in fat metabolism, particularly in a woman who has so much more estrogens than a man does. But estrogens are overall protective against too much fat. We know this from animal and human studies. If you remove the ovaries and remove those big, strong estrogen signals, fat mass starts to go up quickly. So there's something protective against too much fat mass when it comes to the estrogens in general. And then separate from this is that estrogens actually promote a healthy form of fat storage. By promoting fat storage primarily on the butt and hips of the woman, which is the main site of fat storage for most women, that is actually a site of fat storage that promotes greater hyperplasia, where rather than having fat cells grow bigger and bigger and bigger, it rather says, all right, you're a little fat cell, there's high insulin, we're telling you to store more. Well, rather than get really big, let's just make a new little fat cell right beside it. And so it might seem like a bit of a paradox, but estrogens essentially help a woman store fat in small, healthy fat cells. Even though there are more fat cells in general, it ends up being an overall healthier profile. And that's why women are almost always fatter than men, but healthier than men at the same time. They're, her body is literally supposed to have more fat than the man's, and she needs more fat than the man's to be healthy for normal fertility and other processes as well. So as a woman is now transitioning and leaving the high estrogen days behind her, there is a risk that comes with that, which is as the estrogens are coming down, it's kind of a bit of a double whammy, which is you are losing the general fat protective effect that estrogens are playing, not allowing or discouraging the body from storing too much fat. And two, you're losing that healthy way of storing fat. And now in the absence of estrogens, if there's still a signal to be storing fat, more of that relatively is going to be stored like her male counterpart, which is going to be more central fat storage and hypertrophic fat cells rather than subcutaneous fat storage or the fat storage 
right beneath the skin and hyperplastic fat cells, which is small, but more multiple. So the woman transitioning again to maybe put a fine point on it all. I think it is still an opportunity to get lean even. I mean, as crazy as that may sound, I don't think it's hopeless. I think it is an opportunity to leverage the changes that are happening and maybe even capitalize on those to be leaner than before. There might be a benefit to just the steadiness that comes from that transition period where you don't have these really dramatic changes in hormones. You know, maybe there's an opportunity for her to get into habits that aren't at the whims of these hormones and the wild changes that she's had before then, if we can put any positive spin on this. And I'm certainly trying to, because as much as, and I don't mean to overstep my bounds here, as much as this transition period is so often reviled and hated, it is a natural thing. And I can't help but think this is how humans have been built. It happens. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for it. It can't all be bad, you know, and maybe that's just an overly naive thing where I'm always determined to see the body as having been built as a rational series of events. And so I can't help but look at this transition into menopause as something that is, well, it's undeniably natural and even something that's supposed to happen. So I cannot look at it as something that's purely pathological or purely harmful or purely something to be reviled. There must be something about it that can be, that we can take advantage of. Well, I love the positive message because I think for a society that's largely very ageist focused, there are a lot of women that feel a tremendous amount of shame when they are making that transition, when they're no longer fertile or unable to conceive and carry a child on their own, maybe without a lot of technology. Mm-hmm. Now, one point about estrogen that I'm just curious about. So we know the predominant form of estrogen is estradiol prior to going through menopause. And then, then a strone kind of takes over. And I know this is a weaker form of estrogen. Mm-hmm. Is that what is being generated, you know, viscerally, the hypertrophic, as you refer to the less healthy type of fat? Is that the type of estrogen that you're focusing on predominantly in the menopausal female? I'm just trying to mm-hmm. put all the yeah. pieces together in yeah. my head. Yeah. So estradiol is the main estrogen that is helping the woman store fat at a limited amount and in a healthier way. And so it is the loss of estradiol that then accounts for the, you know, seemingly harmful changes in fat Mm -hmm. metabolism. As you note, other estrogens are just weaker and they might I have to speculate. They might have a similar effect, and maybe it's just that there's not enough of that signal anymore. Or it might be that because it is, in fact, a different hormone, it might not have the same effect at all. I don't know. It's really interesting because I know, as you mentioned, there's this preoccupation concern with all these bodily changes. And one of the roles of estrogen that I find fascinating And it's also really critically important for people to understand this, that if we want to be metabolically healthy, irrespective of our age, we really have to be mindful of the influence of our sex hormones in conjunction with our fat cells, in conjunction with insulin. And so, you know, you brought up a really good point that, you know, the body really does try to be very efficient and try Mm -hmm. to ensure that things are working in the manner that they're supposed to. And what I find really interesting And I never learned this in nursing or my nurse practitioner program. I learned this many years later is that, you know, the first two weeks of our menstrual cycles, 
this is when estrogen, estradiol predominates, and we are much more insulin sensitive Mm -hmm. versus the latter part of our menstrual cycle prior to menstruation, when progesterone predominates and we are tired and cranky and we become more insulin resistant. And so is it any surprise we get these cravings for foods that may or may not be in our best interest to consume, but I love just how the body is trying to you know, intuitively gravitate towards exactly the way that it needs to work efficiently. I think, unfortunately, what's happened is that we have these gross abnormalities in our sex hormone balancing, whether it's a byproduct of, you know, synthetic contraceptives or PCOS or infertility or any number, you know, I know in podcasts I listened to yesterday, you were saying the term estrogen dominance isn't really a scientific term and seeing a lot of the influence of toxins in our environment, you know, endocrine disrupting chemicals, how a lot of people's hormones their sex hormones can really get offline. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. In fact, I love that you're bringing that up. It's something that I don't talk about often because it's not my area of expertise, but as a father, I, I think of that more actually in the context of my children, my little girls and my little boy, especially, I am very mindful of the plastics that we have that they're drinking water from. I'm very mindful of the detergents that we're using and the perhaps the pesticides or other chemicals, many of which remarkably act as estrogens or they have these estrogen Medic effects. That's something I'm very mindful of. I don't want my daughters having too much estrogens. I don't want them to develop physically too early, not only because of the social ramifications, uh, but also the genuine health concerns with increased risks in, bra- in, in breast and uterine cancers. And my little boy, of course, I don't want him to be developing in an environment of high estrogen activity. So this is a result, though, of the world that we live in. There's something I can't really speak to because I'm not a chemist, but the fact that these molecules are so widely used with such a broad application, you know, coming from things like pesticides, detergents, and plastics, those are all three very different things. And yet there are molecules found in all of them that are estrogen mimetics or acting like estrogen is to varying degrees. And that's even more the case when we look at some of the foods we're eating that are increasingly plant-based. And when you are refining a plant, especially a seed, in order to say get its proteins, you end up getting a lot of other stuff. And so I'm very mindful of these other kind of supplements or whatever foods that we have in the home to make sure that not only are we controlling, you know, the plastics and the detergents, for example, but also that my kids, when I'm focusing on them getting protein, which is almost my simplest strategy for feeding my kids. It is based on real protein. I want it to be protein that's coming from animal sources because I know that they're not going to get, I mean, among the benefits of just getting real fats and real proteins, which will work better, they're not going to be contaminated with these things I don't want, like these, say, phytoestrogens, which have a a genuine biological effect. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. 
It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. Product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. And it's interesting that you bring this up because it was part of the trajectory of our conversation. I was hoping it would go in this direction. And I truly believe that there is in many ways, there's a plant-based agenda that's going on. I'm seeing peers on many social media platforms that are being attacked because they are pro-animal-based protein. And yet 
you know, when you really look at a lot of the research and ironically enough, one of my nurse practitioner journals came recently and probably the soybean agenda that was being mm-hmm. pushed throughout there. Oh, women in perimenopause and menopause need soy, lots of soy milk, lots of edamame, use these soy-based products, soybeans protein. And so I'm very grateful that unbeknownst to you that you kind of touched on this topic because on many levels, I think it all starts with food. I think on every level, the way to ensure that we can properly balance hormones, especially insulin, is based on the food choices that we're making. And for so many people, they're really quite confused. And so, mm-hmm. you know, even reflecting on your book, which is so beautifully written, and I'm always recommending it to people because I think it's Thanks. such a tangible, tangible information and makes things like very clear and concise and cohesive when you're talking to people about, you know, food choices, you know, satiety is something that we don't talk about with our patients. We just tell them, you know, go watch, you know, the, my plate nonsense, which is so carbohydrate focused. And yet that's the antithesis, what you're suggesting, what I suggest, and, you know, plays along with the, you know, plant-based agenda, you know, the animal-based proteins versus plant-based proteins, there's little to no comparison between either of them. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And that is absolute quantifiable objective data. By any conceivable metric, animal protein is superior to plant protein, full stop. The case that some would make that perimenopausal women need to be focusing on soy is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Mm Mind-blowing. Not only are you going to be getting an inferior source of protein by, again, every metric, and of all the times to start cutting out good protein, that would be the worst to do it, where you are losing the bone protective effects of the estrogens, you want to do everything you can to keep those bones as strong and dynamic as possible. That's what the proteins provide. They turn what would be a hard but brittle structure and turns it into a hard and pliable um, structure. So allowing the bone to bend and not break. So it is the worst thing to do to focus on the the vastly inferior source of protein that would come from soy. But also there's an honest to goodness clinical case study that I'd seen. I can't cite it off the top of my head, but I know, uh, I know it where there was, this was a case report of a woman who would experience frequent uterine polyps and bleeding And they scrutinized her diet and found that it was just soy everything. It was soy milk. It was tofu. It was soy protein, powder, whatever. And they had her cut all of that out and it stopped. The uterine bleeding stopped. The polyps stopped growing. That's a pretty damning evidence and against this just ridiculous notion that a woman ought to be focusing on soy. That's unethical based on the data that suggests it's unhealthy. And it's unethical based on the absolute lack of data, clinical data, suggesting that it's healthy at all. So we have evidence suggesting it's not. We have a dearth of evidence suggesting that it is. So yeah, it's and that combined with the fact that it is by every metric a worse protein than literally any animal protein, not to mention the beneficial fats that come with that protein rather than the harmful fats that come with the soy. Well, then to me, the court is out uh, and the decision, the verdict is in animal protein all day. Well, and it's interesting. I think a lot of women are afraid of protein. They're afraid of eating enough protein. When I start doing, you know, just food diaries with, you know, middle-aged women, I'm oftentimes shocked that they are eating really tiny, itty bitty portions of protein 
far too many carbohydrates. I mean, quinoa is a great example. I think Dr. Gabrielle Lyons said, you know, six ounces of steak is equates to six cups of quinoa, which if you just take the calorie piece out of the amount of carbohydrates, and we know that we become physiologically more insulin resistant as we age. So the worst thing you can be doing is eating copious amounts of carbohydrates, which is not to suggest that there are, you know, good quality choices of carbohydrates, but certainly in middle age. And I think this also very likely applies to men as well. If we're looking at the average American, 88% of individuals Mm -hmm. are metabolically unhealthy. Most, if not all of us need to be eating less carbohydrates, more, you know, non-starchy vegetables, certainly low glycemic berries. If you're doing those kinds of things and less focus on breads and pastas and, you know, these very highly hyper palatable, highly addictive processed carbohydrates. That's right. And they always come with fat. That's where we are bucking nature or certainly an ancestral way of eating. The diet we have nowadays is high carb, high fat. Those two don't come together. Mm -hmm. It is carbohydrates on their own which is every fruit or vegetable or grain that's almost purely just starch or sugar. And then you have, in contrast, fat and protein, which essentially always come together. Now, we have some exceptions where we have gotten oil from, say, some plants or some fruit. And fruit oils are fine. That's coconut, avocado, olive. That's a a fat. Those are fats that we've been eating since the beginning of time. But the, other than those exceptions, fat always comes with protein. That's how we should get them. And part of the frustration for me is that when people are told to base a diet primarily on carbohydrates, I have two significant sources of resentment against that advice. One is that you are now focusing on the macronutrient that spikes insulin the most. I have a problem with that. I'm an insulin guy, so of course I do. Two, you are now focusing on the one macronutrient that is not essential to humans. Now, neither you nor I are saying, well, then let's not eat any. We're not saying that. We're more nuanced than that. Yes, you can eat them. You can enjoy them, but eat them in as natural a state as possible. But at the very least, we should say, what is essential in the human diet? There are essential fats. There are essential amino acids. Thankfully, animal proteins have all of those. Let's focus the diet on those two. The fact that they also have little to no effect on insulin, well, that's just icing on the cake. But let's not base the diet on the one macronutrient that is actually not essential to humans. And that's not debatable. Even the most dogmatic dietitian has to admit that um, carbohydrates are not essential to humans. Now, again, none of us are saying let's not eat them at all, but let's certainly appreciate that that is the extra stuff. That is the stuff that can be sprinkled around the edge of the plate, whereas the bulk of the plate should be made up of the things we actually have a biological need for, protein and fat. Well, I think sometimes people forget if they, maybe it's been 20 plus years since they were in a biology class, but you know, gluconeogenesis is a real thing. Our bodies can produce carbohydrates if they need them. And it's beautiful that our bodies can do this. So if you're getting adequate protein, then your body can make adequate carbohydrates, you know, systemically. And and I think on many levels, uh, I feel like this concept really triggers people because they really dogmatically, they love their carbs. I mean, in fact, sometimes my teenagers, and I would say, you know, healthy, lean teenage athletes are kind of the exception. They seem to be able to eat whatever they want. But when they hear me talking and I remind them, I'm like, just think about how metabolically unhealthy the average person is. 
And it's even more reason to focus on satiety. It's even more reason to focus on things that don't provoke an insulin response. I was going through someone's food diary the other day, and I was kind of gently kind of pointing out some things that I think we could, you know, definitely work on. And she had no idea that fat has the most negligible impact on insulin followed by, you know, protein and then carbs. And I explained to her, I mean, and this kind of explains on many levels why we put meals together in a certain way. I said, I'm not anti-carb. I certainly for full disclosure, I tend to be low carb all the time and I'm happy there. Mm -hmm. And that works well for me. But, you know, I think it's this kind of total rethinking, turning things on its head, reminding people that if we get back to a more ancestral health perspective, as it pertains to nutrition, we will be much more healthy for sure. Yep. Yep. And there is part of this in what you said here, there is something that is so often misunderstood and is then weaponized again, because Mm -hmm. of it being misunderstood. And that is the difference between glucose in the blood and carbohydrates in the diet. There are some cells of the body that have a genuine and total reliance on glucose. Like the red blood cells can only metabolize glucose. That is literally the only fuel for a red blood cell. There are other cells that appear to have some need, some cells of the kidney and perhaps in portions of the brain where it does appear that glucose is playing some role there, essential or not, we don't know. But let's just, regardless, the brain is uh, happily or gladly using the glucose. But that is confused with then suggesting that carbohydrates are now absolute and required in the diet. No, just because some cells need glucose, like red blood cells, the most obvious, does not mean the diet requires carbohydrates. Because to your point, because there is the need, the liver makes all we need. It literally makes every gram of glucose we need, the liver makes. And the body adapts and where it knows, like the brain, the brain knows, uh, we're not eating as much glucose now. I'm just going to start using less glucose then so that maybe other cells like the red blood cells can get all they need. And I will, in contrast, shift over to using fat products like ketones. And now the brain is getting 75% of its energy from ketones. And so the body adapts to the lower glucose state, but also the low glucose demands that the body has at any moment are met by the body itself, which is why we can say so authoritatively, there's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. But that nuance is lost on people who have a little bit of education, and yet they end up confusing the issue tragically. So they know a little bit, and it ends up working against them, where they know the red blood cells need glucose, and they think that means the diet requires carbohydrates when in reality it doesn't. You know, I think on many levels and certainly I reflect back on my childhood and my mom was crunchy before her time. I didn't realize, you know, we were eating organ meats and fresh baked bread and lots of vegetables with every meal, how unusual that was. It certainly instilled really good habits, but I think somewhere along the way, we really lost sight. I said, we, as a country, as a nation, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm you know, big ag convinced us that we didn't know how to cook for ourselves and we needed to really rely on these processed foods. And in many ways, I think the processed food industry has really has contributed to this escalating rate of obesity and diabetes and insulin resistance and all of these problems that we're, you know, mitigating and trying to navigate. And I'm curious, you know, what your feelings are. And I would imagine they're very aligned. A lot of the questions that came in were about digestion and about micronutrients, but when we're talking about these hyper palatable, very highly processed foods, do you feel that seed oils are any better or worse than high fructose corn syrup, or are they about the same in terms of damage to the mitochondria 
damage, creating inflammation, inflammaging, and, you know, also kind of facilitating this insulin resistant state that we're dealing with. Yeah, what a great question. Kind of carbs versus seed oils. That's one of the modern debates. My view, now the reason I have a healthy respect for dietary carbohydrates is because of what they do to insulin. And we know in every biomedical model tested, cells, rodents, and humans, high insulin causes insulin resistance. So that is why I point the finger at carbohydrates, because there is truly that in light of insulin, there is a direct effect. Now, some people will say, well, what about these traditional cultures where they're eating you know, tuberous vegetables? That is not the same, because even in those cultures like the Kitavin in the mm-hmm. Pacific Island, their fasting insulin levels are exquisitely low. And so I'm not just blanket saying all carbs are bad. No, it's what you and I have said where there's a nuance there where it is a processed carbohydrate is going to have a significantly higher effect on your insulin than an unprocessed carbohydrate. Like eating a baked potato is a very different thing than eating potato chips. And that matters because when you are spiking your insulin too often, you're going to cause insulin resistance. So there's a known effect. Now, seed oils are absolutely relevant to health, and we're eating thousands of times more of them than we ever have before. And on a, at a superficial level, the body knows what to do with glucose better than it knows what to do. Like a high load of glucose, the body knows what to do with. A high load of seed oils, I think, is probably in and of itself more pathogenic. That's going to do more harm. And that's because the primary fat from seed oils is so readily oxidized. It is turned into what's called the lipid peroxide. And that is this kind of unholy, the result, kind of the bastard child of this unholy union of oxidative stress and this readily oxidized fat. And the problem with the lipid peroxide is that it can now induce oxidative damage anywhere it wants. And DNA and proteins in the mitochondria and nucleus, it can go anywhere and induce oxidative damage. So they're highly pathogenic. The degree to which these seed oils are directly contributing to insulin resistance, well, that's just a little less clear. Any fat, I mean, people will cite studies in rodents and humans when they're infusing fat and then that causes insulin resistance. Any fat will do that to some degree. If you just start infusing a lot of fat directly into the blood, which is not the same as eating the fat, you start infusing fat directly into the blood, the body needs to burn that fat. And so naturally, it will turn off glucose burning by inducing some insulin resistance to account for this load of fat that has just been thrown into the body. So in that direct model, sure, seed oils are going to provide a direct effect, but every fat would. So the evidence that eating um, seed oil is directly going to cause insulin resistance, that is less clear. I can say with certainty, when you put seed oils on cells, it doesn't make them insulin resistant. So there's not a direct effect. However, there are other effects um, that these seed oils are inducing that are all harmful and pathogenic. But within the realm of insulin resistance, I suspect there is a connection and it's more of an indirect connection. And that is high consumption of seed oils results in high accumulation of these fats in fat cells. And the seed oil metabolites in fat cells will cause a fat cell to grow through hypertrophy rather than hyperplasia. And of course, as we discussed at the outset, that is a more harmful insulin resistance way for fat cells to grow. And so there is that indirect effect. The evidence that there's a direct effect is weaker. It might be there, but I've not seen it. And if I may be 
you know, so bold, I've seen a lot. So I don't think it's there. (laughs) Well, and I think it just goes against, you know, the kind of general consensus that, you know, it's not important to read food labels because I encourage anyone that's listening that if you spend a little bit of time in a grocery store and you're looking at something in a box, a bag or a can, more often than not, you're going to find a seed oil. In fact, my kids know, and I have teenagers and I'm very realistic with them, try to find a chip Again, I have teenagers that doesn't have seed oils in it. We have like maybe four brands. Mm-hmm. And I love that there are brands of some of these options for, you know, people that live in a realistic environment, but they come in very small bags yep. and they're much more expensive. It's so all yep. reminding my kids, please don't go overboard because yep. I'm not going to buy the same quantity that you would get in the seed oil laden options that are out there. So yep. just know that when it's done, it's done. Yep. That's right. Um, yeah. So there comes- are chips. My kids like one that's an avocado oil, but yep. just like you said, they're small and they're expensive and the kids know that's a finite resource. Dad's a professor, <laughs> which means we can only afford so many, you know, yes. so much of it. Yeah. So there's a lesson there, but also one other note on seed oil or more specifically to the fat that's in seed oil, this polyunsaturated omega-6 fat called linoleic acid it is likely one of the essential fatty acids for humans, and it is everywhere in nature. Every animal food will have some linoleic acid in it. And so there's an important distinction where in and of itself, linoleic acid, you know, the culprit in these seed oils is not always a villain, where it does appear to be a hero at modest amounts. So one, of course, the poison is in the dose. We're eating thousands of times more than we ever did before. We're also eating it in the absence of natural antioxidants that should come with it. Because when you're eating an animal fat with some a little bit of linoleic acid, you're also getting some trace amounts of natural antioxidants, like, say, vitamin E to some degree that's going to be in this animal fat as well. And I don't think that's an accident. Those, the fact that you're getting this linoleic acid, which might be essential for humans with an antioxidant that might help it stay in its original form. I think there's something to be said for that. What is interesting about linoleic acid is that it is used by the brain to create ketones. The brain can make its own ketones from linoleic acid, but only if it hasn't only if it's in its original state. If we've taken that linoleic acid and turned it into a lipid peroxide, it's done, it's committed, it's harmful now, nothing else, full stop. If we can keep it in its original state as just this polyunsaturated fat, well, the body can do something with that. The cell can do something with that. And whether it is using it for fuel by burning it, or whether it is turning it into arachidonic acid, which is not the villain everyone thinks it is. Every arachidonic acid is relevant to inflammation And so because linoleic acid is a precursor to arachidonic acid, people will say that it's inherently pro-inflammatory. That's just not true. We need arachidonic acid. There's no recovery. There's no immune response if it's not for arachidonic acid. But at the end of it all, to use linoleic acid well must stay in its original form not become a lipid peroxide. And I think when we get it from animal sources, any like in beef in eggs and dairy, wherever it's coming from, it's always coming with some minuscule amounts of antioxidants. And I don't think that's an accident. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered 
armor colostrum. And the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy provide mental clarity and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. I think it's a beautiful balance. And for anyone that's listening and thinking, I don't know what we're talking about. So broad-based omega-3s tend to be anti-inflammatory, omega-6s tend to be pro-inflammatory, but much to your point we need some degree of inflammation acutely. I mean, that's absolutely critically important. I'm not a scientist, but I remind people that if you overall look at the typical standard American diet, it is more pro-inflammatory, less anti-inflammatory. And those seed oils are what help drive those imbalances. Like I was taught many years ago that it should be a one-to-one balance and that most Americans is a 20 to one, which explains a lot of the health things that we're kind of touching on. Now, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about digestion as it pertains to insulin resistance, insulin instability, because oftentimes people don't put some of these 
problems together and kind of correlate them with an imbalance in insulin. And the one that stands out the most to me is gastroparesis. So Mm. I cannot tell you how many diabetic patients in cardiology I took care of that had this delayed gastric emptying. And I was always taught, oh, it's a byproduct of they've had they've had insulin problems for far too long. But we know that it also ties into things like gastroesophageal reflux disease. It ties into gallstones. And so can we touch on that a little bit? Because I was getting quite a few questions from people asking, were there interrelationships between these disorders and insulin resistance? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is a bidirectional phenomenon where you can have gastrointestinal problems, which always in some form, almost always will result in some form of inflammation in subsequently causing insulin resistance itself. So you can have a gut problem causing insulin resistance. In contrast, or let me say it a little more broadly, a gut problem causing a metabolic problem, and then it can go the other direction. You can have a metabolic problem causing a gut problem. So the prior direction that I mentioned, gut to metabolic, that's obvious, and it's usually through inflammation, where when the gut is compromised, one, it's invoking a direct immune response at the gut because that is the single site of more immune cells than anywhere else in the whole body. This site of interaction between what we've ingested and it now coming into the body. No surprise that we have a huge you know, wall almost of immune cells to make sure that whatever's coming in is supposed to be coming in. Mm-hmm. And, and so a gut problem often will result in an inflammation problem. And then the more that problem will continue, of course, the more we lose the integrity of the gut and molecules that are supposed to stay in the gut now start moving in to the bloodstream, causing now systemic inflammation, all of which is contributing to insulin resistance. Inflammation is a primary cause of insulin resistance. Now, the direct molecular mediators that result or mediate insulin resistance now causing a gut problem is simply unclear. We do know that people with more insulin resistance have a much, much greater likelihood of developing or already having some of the problems, and you just mentioned them, gastroparesis and GERD and uh, and irritable bowel, but the mechanisms aren't clear. Some of what might explain it, and I'm speculating, could be a lack of energy to some of these cells where we don't have, if the cells have become insulin resistant, they might be compromised in their ability to pull in glucose to some degree, meaning that they can't do what they need to do, including, say, a smooth muscle around the intestines to be contracting and moving the food along through peristalsis. Those are muscles that are helping that happen, and it might be that those muscles are insulin resistant, and now they're just more lethargic due to a lack of energy. It might also be a lack of overall protein synthesis within those cells or the maintenance of those proteins because insulin is anabolic. It wants to tell cells to grow things and keep those things. Now, that has to be checked, of course. You need anabolic and it needs to be checked with catabolic. But as the cell is becoming insulin resistant, you might be losing some of the anabolic effect of that insulin. And so the cells themselves are compromised in that they aren't making their proteins or they can't keep their proteins. And proteins are really what lets a cell do whatever it wants to do in some way, shape, or form, whether it is proteins on the surface of the cell or proteins inside the cell or proteins within the organelles of the cell. It's the proteins that allow the cell to do whatever the cell is trying to do. And insulin likes making proteins. 
You know, one of the other questions that I got, and it was interesting, I tend to ask questions all over social media. And sometimes it'll be Twitter that's very focused. Everyone on Twitter wanted to talk about insulin resistance. I said, that makes complete sense. A lot of people on Instagram were asking questions about vitamin D, how that that interrelationship with insulin sensitivity or lack thereof, because most Americans are low in vitamin D talking about essential fatty acids, as well as a few other things. But I'd love to dive into, you know, the existing kind of research talking about the interplay between vitamin D as a hormone, and then also insulin. Yeah, so I hate to disappoint the audience. I don't know the specific mechanisms with regards to vitamin D enhancing insulin sensitivity, but it is there. It's real. We know that people that are vitamin D deficient, you do nothing but give them vitamin D to like, you know, a high quality usable vitamin D that increases their plasma vitamin D. And that alone will improve their insulin sensitivity. So we know there's something there, but I don't know that we know the mechanism. I don't. I don't know the mechanism whereby sufficient vitamin D is promoting insulin resistance. I wish I did, but we know that it's there, that there's something about it, and that if someone is vitamin D deficient, there's no question that's going to be contributing to a greater propensity for insulin resistance. Thankfully, it's a pretty simple solution where you know that, you know, like if someone does have confirmed low vitamin D, that when you have that kind of clarity, it gives you a simple plan of attack. There's a simplicity to that, which is, okay, I just need to enhance my vitamin D. You know, if the person's trying to take one step at a time and you have a role there that I don't have, I don't act as a clinician in any way, shape or form. I have no direct interaction with like a patient or a client like you do. I'm only the guy who sits back and thinks of ideas. And my great hope is that some of these ideas become useful to someone who's on the front lines. And that represents kind of this perfect version of how this is supposed to work. People come up with answers to questions and there are people who apply those answers in interacting with a client or a patient. So anyway, my point being when someone is told they have low vitamin D, I think they ought to do like a fist pump thinking, all right, I can do something about that. And it doesn't have to be overly uncomfortable or overly expensive. Absolutely. And I do love that there is a true, and this is true, like the beauty of academics is that this is really how it's meant to work, that there's a scientist looking at problems in different ways, and then sharing that information in a way that's accessible. Because one of the things that I value and appreciate about you and your platform is that you make information, you make insulin interesting for people to (laughs) learn more about, even the lay public, I'm serious. But also as clinicians are saying, you know, I think there's something to this, you know, we're looking at the wrong metric. We're very focused on fasting glucose and hemoglobin A1C. And yet we really need to be looking deeper. I think we were speaking before we started recording and I was saying I had this really lovely patient and she was working concurrently with someone locally. And I kept saying to her, you need to know your fasting insulin number because her fasting blood sugar didn't look all that bad. She had a CGM, mm-hmm. she, her hemoglobin A1C didn't look all that bad. And I suspected she was leptin resistant just based on what she was sharing with me. And I said, I would be surprised if she's also not insulin resistant and her fasting insulin was 20. And yep. I said, you're never going to lose weight. <laughs> and and you know what, Cynthia, adding insult to injury intellectually is that to the average clinician, they could very well look at that number and say, oh, you know what, that's a good number. 
They have no, so not only is conventional medicine overlooking insulin entirely, even the little bit of scrutiny that they are giving insulin is so wildly off base that you can find, first of all, there's no consensus for what good insulin levels are. Like we have with glucose, we have such clear consensus cutoffs for glucose. This is good, this is bad, and this is terrible. That doesn't exist with insulin. It's a series of different entities, different groups who have their own metrics of insulin, and they're all way too high high because they will look at the average American and they will say, what is the average American? And you don't appear to have obvious disease. And so your insulin is 15. So 15 must be good. You don't appear to have obvious disease. And yet behind the scenes, they have hypertension to some degree. They have some kind of hyperlipidemia, whatever, but it doesn't reach the point of being overtly clinically relevant perhaps. So it's, even when they do measure insulin, very often someone, a patient would have 20 micrograms per mil and the average clinician would say, oh, you know, that's below 30. That's fine. And, and you and I are, th- I'm thinking that's four times higher, you know, yeah. well, not quite. That's a lot higher than what it should be. Double what, at least what I would consider to be a good number. And it really does. That really is my central thesis that at the end of my career, professionally speaking, if I can look back and say, People look at health differently and they include insulin and appreciate insulin in a way they didn't before, average you know, clinical medicine, then I will retire with a great sense of satisfaction. But I am increasingly cynical because conventional medicine doesn't want to, I don't know, maybe how can I put that diplomatically, give them the benefit of the doubt. Glucose is a druggable target just like LDL. And so you can look at glucose and there's a whole cupboard of drugs that will lower glucose. Some of them, many of them act by increasing insulin. So that's an inconvenient truth. They don't want to acknowledge that by lowering the glucose because they're increasing the insulin, that they're making the patient fatter and sicker. They don't want to acknowledge that glucose is a druggable target. And so it is much more clinically sexy. They want to look at glucose because insulin isn't a druggable target. And so that's an inconvenient clinical marker that can only really be moved by changing diet. And there's no money to be made by telling a patient to change diet. Yeah. Well, I mean, working in cardiology as an MP for 16 years, I got to a point where I was truly at a breaking point. I said, I can't keep writing for statins. I can't keep doing this when there's an elephant in the room every time I see a patient. And much to your point about insulin, it's interesting. I had mine drawn like once, I do it once or twice a year. And my midwife didn't know what to do with my number. She said, I've never seen an insulin of two. (laughs) But she said, I'm going to assume that you know what that means and you're okay with that. And I said, sure. I said, you know, also in the setting of the age that I am and probably that my estradiol is, you know, kind of not as high as it was, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. But I agree with you that the hard work is the lifestyle changes and whether it's cognitive dissonance or apathy or burnout. And I think there's probably a combination of all of Mm -hmm. the above for many clinicians that are practicing right now. I think anyone that's listening, you need to know what you're fasting insulin is. You need to know that number because that is a metric that you can track, you can improve. And much to your point that you made earlier, you got to change what you're doing. You have to change what you're putting in your mouth. You need to get better quality sleep. You need to manage your stress. Those are all critically important. And especially, you know, for many of us that have children, it's like, I want to be healthy. 
so that I can play with my grandchildren one day. Yep. That is one of my prime motivations. And the value of looking at insulin is now you're looking at a much more sensitive predictor. Mm -hmm. You know, by the time the glucose is changing, your insulin has already changed 10 or 20 years before. So you can detect the problems much, much sooner. And then by addressing the insulin, you're actually addressing the root problem. Because when you're trying to fix glucose, you're just addressing one of the manifestations of the problem. It's like you're trying to fix the hypertension, you know, or the cognitive decline, all of those are manifestations of one single problem, which is the elevated insulin. So you're getting so much more bang for your buck and getting a much more sensitive diagnostic marker. But I like that you mentioned the the clinicians in, in a more favorable light. I don't ever intend to just throw clinicians under the bus. That's not fair to expect someone to know what they haven't been taught. And I don't even mean to say that in a derogatory way as if, oh, I'm so clever because I know this. No, I know one thing, and that is insulin. And I know it really, really well. And because I'm an academic, I can make a career out of knowing one thing. You know, a clinician has to know a lot of things. They have a huge breadth of knowledge. And while they don't go as deep as I am in one area, well, they can't afford to do that. You know, because that's not as much as I love insulin. We can't say that that's the explanation for every clinical visit. It's just, oh, check your insulin. See, next patient, check your insulin. (laughs) No, and I'm not suggesting that at all. But to the nurse or the doctor, he or she only knows what he or she has been taught or taught themselves. And a physician doesn't get paid to ask scientific questions. A physician gets paid to see patients. And so at the end of a long day where the physician just has to get the patients in and out, it's just the way the structure is built. That's the incentive or that's the profit system. I get paid to do nothing but be curious. You know, and when we end our discussion, I can spend the rest of the day asking myself questions like, Do we know exactly how vitamin D influences insulin resistance? I need to look into that a little more. And I get paid to do that. I don't get paid very well, but, you know, it's not lucrative being curious, but it is still cool. And it's not something that ought to feed my ego just because I know more about one topic than someone else. It's not a source of ego for me, truly, not at all. But it is something where I have an utter conviction that this does matter And so if the clinician, like everyone else, only knows what they've been taught, well, then let me teach you. Let me give you this little bit of education. And I know that there are others with me like you and others that are aligned in this effort, but that requires a little bit of humility. And unfortunately, that is something that does tend to not exist in abundance, the more educated someone gets. And that might even be myself, but the more degrees or the more terminal the degree after someone's name, the less inclined they are to, less inclined we are to admit when we don't know something. Well, I think being a lifelong learner is something we should all strive for, irrespective of to, you know, what initials we have after our name or what our education is. And I'm so very grateful that our paths crossed because you've definitely influenced and, you know, on so many levels, influenced the way that I practice, influenced the things I talk about, influenced things that I discuss with individuals and talk about on social media. So what's next for you? What projects are you working on? I'm sure you're probably getting out and doing more virtual, less virtual, probably more in-person speaking opportunities. What's new for you? Yeah, so there are some um, opportunities at conferences at the end of the year. I I don't even remember what they are, but I'll start doing those a little more, which I enjoy, of course. But in the lab, we have a couple projects that are cool. 
One is continuing to look at the effects of ketones on the bioenergetics mm -hmm. of the hippocampus. And so the hippocampus is the part of the brain that's involved in memory and learning. And that's what's particularly compromised in Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. So we have a rodent study where we are really pushing up the ketones and detecting some of the changes in how the mitochondria are behaving in the hippocampus. Um, and the early results are pretty cool. And so we'll see when it's all said and done um, how the data all shake out. We all also have a study looking at these things called SARMs, S-A-R-M, and SARMs, that stands for Selective Androgen Receptor Modulator. These are proteins that have been used to basically hijack one aspect of anabolic steroids. So when someone's taking testosterone or anabolic steroids, of course, they get big and jacked. But there are other consequences to that potentially because testosterone does more than just tell muscle and bones to grow. And those are consequences that usually a person doesn't want. However, there are situations where you want muscles and bones to grow, like say in cachexia or the wasting away that happens with cancer. And that's the one context these have been used in. So we're just looking at the degree to which these things that kind of act like anabolic steroids, but only act at muscle, we're trying to see what they do to the mitochondria in the muscle, just to get a better idea idea of the relevance for these molecules, maybe in cancer, or maybe even in just general performance. And these are regulated substances. And I think that's a little unfortunate because I, there's little question that they promote muscle growth quite well. So we just, I want to know a little more about that. So that's interestingly something that has nothing to do with insulin whatsoever. Maybe we'll find a connection to insulin, but at the moment, it's just looking at the degree to which these selective androgen receptor modulators influence muscle growth and influence the way the mitochondria are behaving. Well, it all sounds fascinating. So how can listeners connect with you? I know you've got an amazing, your insulin IQ is something that I try to catch on Facebook. You seem to be everywhere. Everywhere I'm looking, I see something that you're uh, delivering. No, it's fan, It's great content and you make it accessible. And I think that's really important. It is easy to talk on a level that you're just speaking with other scientists. It's quite more challenging to take complicated concepts and make them concise and clear for the lay public or even for clinicians, because I'm not a researcher. You know, I, I trained at a big research hospital, sat through many doctoral dissertations that my friends were, were providing. But for those of us that are not scientists, I greatly appreciate and value that well, you, you take the information and make it presentable. I appreciate that. Thank you. In fact, I actually enjoy it. I genuinely enjoy that interaction of taking wonderfully relevant scientific ideas and making sure people appreciate them. And that was the whole reason I got involved in social media in the first place. And I'm mostly active on Instagram. People can find me there at Ben Bickman, PhD. I don't do as much on Twitter anymore, which is funny because that's where I really started. Twitter is just not a place I enjoy anymore. It and I, place. yeah, it's just such a hostile environment now. I just don't care for it. I usually just use Twitter for getting updates on sports. <laughs> and so I hate to say it. So I'm mostly in, active on Instagram where I, a, a time or two a week, I try to put out a little video of whatever on, is on my mind about human health and human metabolism. And again, Ben Bickman, PhD. And then I have two entrepreneurial efforts. One is Insulin IQ, like you mentioned, which is just my effort with some others to create an online coaching platform that really works to get people through low-carb diets. And then the other is a website called Get Health. 
in health is spelled H-L-T-H, no vowels in the health part of it, gethealth.com. And that's a site where people can learn more about a low-carb meal replacement shake that I designed, actually with a couple of my brothers. So it's a little family business. And so anyone can go there, learn more about the shake. And I have blog posts that I put there every week as well. So those are the entrepreneurial efforts and my social media efforts, which is just at the end of all of it, or what they all have in common is I truly just want to convey information and some solutions to problems to try to make it as easy as possible. Well, I'm so grateful for your contributions and to let you know that my 13-year-old really likes your vanilla. Oh, good. That's like his favorite. And because he's a swimmer, he comes home and just eats a voluminous amount of food. And that is oftentimes part of his post-recovery meal. And we will make sure that we post links to all that as well as a discount that your team has graciously given us. So thank you again for your time, Ben. And we'll connect again soon. Yep, my pleasure. This was great. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.